Chapter Twelve of the Exploits of Elaine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Exploits of Elaine by Arthur B. Reeve. Chapter Twelve, The Blood Crystals. On your right is the residence of Miss Elaine Dodge, the heiress who is pursuing the famous master criminal known as the Clutching Hand. The Barker had been grandiloquently pointing out the residences of noted New Yorkers as the big sightseeing car lumbered along through the streets. The car was filled with people, and he plied his megaphone as though he were on intimate terms with all the city notables. No one paid any attention to the unobtrusive Chinaman who sat inconspicuously in the middle of the car. He was Mr. Long Sin, but no one saw anything particularly mysterious about an oriental visitor more or less viewing New York City. Long was of the mandarin type, with drooping moustache, well-dressed in American clothes, and conforming to the new customs of an occidentalized China. Anyone, however, who had been watching Long Sin, would have seen that he showed much interest whenever any of the wealthy residents of the city were mentioned. The name of Elaine Dodge seemed particularly to strike him. He listened with subtle interest to what the Barker said, and looked keenly at the Dodge house. The sightseeing car had passed the house, when he rose slowly and motioned that he wanted to be let off. The car stopped. He alighted and slowly rambled away, evidently marvelling greatly at the strange customs of these uncouth westerners. Elaine was going out when she met Perry Bennett almost on the steps of the house. I brought you the watch, remarked Bennett. Thought I'd like to give it to you myself. He displayed the watch which he himself had bought a couple of days before for her birthday. He had called for it himself at the jeweller's, where it had now been regulated. Oh, thank you, exclaimed Elaine. Won't you come in? They had scarcely greeted each other when Long Sin strolled along. Neither of them, however, had time to notice the quiet Chinaman who passed the house looking at Elaine sharply out of the corner of his eye. They entered and long disappeared down the street. "'Isn't it a beauty?' cried Elaine, holding it out from her, as they entered the library and examining it with great appreciation. "'And, oh, do you know, the strangest thing happened yesterday. Sometimes Mr. Kennedy acts too queerly for anything.' She related how Craig had burst in on her and Aunt Josephine, and had almost torn the other watch off her wrist. "'Another watch?' repeated Bennett, amazed. "'It must have been a mistake. Kennedy is crazy.' "'I don't understand it myself,' murmured Elaine. Long Sin had continued his placid way, revolving some dark and devious plan beneath his impassive oriental countenance. He was no ordinary personage. In fact, he was astute enough 
to have no record. He left that to his tools. This remarkable criminal had established himself in a hired apartment downtown. It was furnished in rather elegant American style, but he had added to it some most valuable oriental curios, which gave it a fascinating appearance. Long Sin, now in rich oriental costume, was reclining on a divan smoking a strange-looking pipe and playing with two pet white rats. Each white rat had a gold band around his leg, to which was connected a gold chain about a foot in length, and the chains ended in rings, which were slipped over Long's little fingers. Ordinarily he carried the pets up the capacious sleeve of each arm. A servant, also in native costume, entered and bowed deferentially. A Miss Mary Carson, she lisped in soft English. Let the lady enter, waved Long Sin, with a smile of subtle satisfaction. The girl bowed again and silently left the room, returning with a handsome, very well-dressed white woman. It would be difficult to analyse just what the fascination was that Long Sin exercised over Mary Carson. But as the servant left the room, Mary bowed almost as deferentially as the little Chinese girl. Long merely nodded in reply. After a moment, he slowly rose and took from a drawer a newspaper clipping. Without a word, he handed it to Mary. She looked at it with interest, as one woman always does at the picture of another pretty woman. It was a newspaper cut of Elaine, under which was Elaine Dodge, the heiress, whose battle with the clutching hand is creating worldwide interest. Now he began, at last breaking the silence. I'll show you just what I want you to do. He went over to the wall and took down a curious long Chinese knife from a scabbard which hung there conspicuously. See that, he added, holding it up. Before she could say a word, he had plunged the knife, apparently into his own breast. Oh, cried Mary, startled. She expected to see him fall, but nothing happened. Long Sin laughed. It was an oriental trick knife in which the blade telescoped into the handle. Look at it, he added, handing it to her. Long Sin took a bladder of water from a table nearby and concealed it under his coat. Now you stab me, he directed. Mary hesitated, but he repeated the command and she plunged the knife gingerly at him. It telescoped. He made her try it over and she stabbed more resolutely. The water from the bladder poured out. Good, cried Long Sin, much pleased. Now, he added, seating himself beside her, I want you to lure Elaine here. Mary looked at him inquiringly as he returned the knife to its scabbard on the wall. Remember where it is, he continued, 
Now, if you will come into the other room, I will show you how to get her. I had been amusing myself by rigging up a contrivance by which I could make it possible to see through, or rather over, a door. The idea had been suggested to me by the sisterscope, which physicians use in order to look down one's throat, and I had calculated that by using three mirrors placed at proper angles, I could easily reflect rays down to the level of my eye. Kennedy, who had been busy in the other end of the laboratory, happened to look over in my direction. What's the big idea, Walter? he asked. It was, I admit, a rather cumbersome and clumsy affair. Well, you see, Craig, I explained, you put the top mirror through the transom of a door and— Kennedy interrupted with a hearty burst of laughter but suppose the door has no transom, he asked, pointing to our own door. I scratched my head thoughtfully. I had assumed that the door would have a transom. A moment later, Craig went to the cabinet and drew out a tube about as big around as a putty blower and as long. Now, here's what I call my detectoscope, he remarked. None of your mirrors for me. I know, I said somewhat nettled, but what can you see through that putty blower? A keyhole is just as good. Do you realize how little you can really see through a keyhole? He replied confidently. Try it over there. I did, and to tell the truth, I could see merely a little part of the hall. Then Kennedy inserted the detectoscope. Look through that, he directed. I put my eye to the eyepiece and gazed through the bulging lens of the other end. I could see almost the whole hall. That, he explained, is what is known as a fisheye lens, a lens that looks through an angle of some 180 degrees, almost twice that of the widest angle lens I know of. I said nothing but tossed my own crude invention into the corner, while Craig went back to work. Elaine was playing with Rusty when Jennings brought in a card on which was engraved the name Miss Mary Carson, and underneath, in pencil, was written Belgian Relief Committee. How interesting, commented Elaine, rising and accompanying Jennings back into the drawing room. I wonder what she wants. Very pleased to meet you, Miss Carson, she greeted her visitor. You see, Miss Dodge, began Mary, we're getting up this movement to help the Belgians, and we have splendid backing. Just let me show you some of the names on our committee. She handed Elaine a list which read, Belgian Relief Committee, Mrs. Warburton Fish, Mrs. Hamilton Beckman, Mrs. C. August Islam, Mrs. Belmont Rivington, Mrs. Rupert Solvay. I've just been sent to see if I cannot persuade you to join the committee and attend a meeting at Mrs. Rivington's, she went on. Why, er, uh, considered Elaine thoughtfully. 
Er, uh, yes. It must be all right with such people in it. Can you go with me now? Just as well as later, agreed Elaine. They went out together, and as they were leaving the house, a man, who had been loitering outside, looked at Elaine, then fixedly at her companion. No sooner had they gone than he sped off to a car waiting around the corner. In the dark depths was a sinister figure, the master criminal himself. The watcher had been an emissary of the clutching hand. Chief, he whispered eagerly, you know adventurous Mary. Well, she's got Elaine Dodge in tow. That juice, cried clutching hand. Then we must teach Mary Carson, or whoever she is working for, a lesson. No one shall interfere with our affairs. Follow them. Elaine and Mary had gone downtown, talking animatedly, and walked down the avenue towards Mrs. Rivington's apartment. Meanwhile, Long Sin, still in his Chinese costume, was explaining to the servant just what he wished done, pointing out the dagger on the wall and replacing the bladder under his jacket. A box of opium was on the table, and he was giving most explicit directions. It was in such a web that Elaine was being unwittingly led by Mary. Entering the hallway of the apartment, Mary rang the bell. Long heard it. Answer it, he directed the servant, who hastened to do so, while Long glided like a serpent into a back room. The servant opened the door, and Elaine and Mary entered. He closed the door, and almost before they knew, locked it, and was gone into the back room. Elaine gazed about in trepidation, but before she could say anything, Mary, with a great show of surprise, exclaimed, Why, I must have made a mistake. This isn't Mrs. Rivington's apartment. How stupid of me. They looked at each other a moment, then each laughed nervously. As together they started to go out of the door, it was locked. Quickly they ran to another door. It was locked also. Then they went to the windows. Behind the curtains they were barred and looked out on a blank brick wall in a little court. Oh, cried Mary, wringing her hands, stricken in mock panic. Oh, I'm so frightened. This may be the den of Chinese white slavers. She had picked up some Chinese articles on a table, including the box that Long had left there. It had a peculiar odour. Opium, she whispered, showing it to Elaine. The two looked at each other, Elaine genuinely worried now. Just then the Chinaman entered and stood a moment gazing at them. They turned and Elaine recoiled from him, Long bowed. Oh, sir, cried Mary, we've made a mistake. Can't you tell us how to get out? Long's only answer was to spread out his hands in polite deprecation and shrug his suave shoulders. 
"'No speak English,' he said, gliding out again from the room and closing the door. Elaine and Mary looked about in despair. "'What shall we do?' asked Elaine. Mary said nothing, but with a hasty glance discovered on the wall the knife which Long had already told her about. She took it from its scabbard. As she did so, the Chinaman returned with a tray on which were queer drinks and glasses. At the sight of Mary with the knife, he scowled blackly, laid the tray down, and took a few steps in her direction. She brandished the knife threateningly, then, as if her nerve failed her, fainted letting the knife fall carefully on the floor, so that it struck on the handle and not on the blade. Long quickly caught her as she fainted, and carried her out of the room, banging shut the door. Elaine followed in a moment, loyally to protect her supposed friend, but found that the door had a snap lock on the other side. She looked about wildly, and in a moment Long reappeared. As she advanced slowly and insinuatingly, she drew back pleading, but her words fell on seemingly deaf ears. She had picked up the knife which Mary had dropped, and when at last Long manoeuvred to get her cornered and was about to seize her, she nerved herself up and stabbed him resolutely. Long staggered back and fell. As he did so, he pressed the bladder which he had already placed under his coat. A dark red fluid, like blood, oozed out all over him, and ran in a pool on the floor. Elaine, too horror-stricken at what had happened, even to scream, dropped the knife and bent over him. He did not move. She staggered back and ran through the now open door. As she did so, Long seemed suddenly to come to life. He raised himself and looked after her, then, with a subtle smile, sunk back into his former assumed posture on the floor. When Elaine reached the other room, she found Mary there with the Chinese servant, who was giving her a glass of water. At the sight of her, the servant paused, then withdrew into another room further back. Mary, now apparently recovering from her faintness, smiled wanly at Elaine. "'It's all right,' she murmured. "'He is the Chinese prince who thought we were callers.' At the reassuring nod of Mary toward the front room, Elaine was overcome. "'I—I I killed him,' she managed to gasp. "'What?' cried Mary, starting up and trembling violently. "'You killed him?' "'Yes,' sobbed Elaine. He came at me. I had the knife. I struck at him. The two girls ran into the other room. There Mary looked at the motionless body on the floor, and recoiled, horrified. Elaine, noticing some spots on her hands, and seeing that they were stained by the blood of long sin, wiped the spots off on her handkerchief, dropping it on the floor. Ah! exclaimed a guttural voice behind them. It was the servant who had come in. 
even his ordinarily impassive oriental face could not conceal the horror and fear at the sight of his master lying on the floor in a pool of gore. Elaine was now more frightened than ever, if that were possible. You kill him with knife, insinuated the Chinese. Elaine was dumb. The servant did not wait for an answer, but hastily opened the hall door. To Elaine it seemed that something must be done quickly. A moment and all the house would be in uproar. Instead he placed his finger on his lips. Quick, no word, he said, leading the way to the hall door. And you must not leave that. It will be a clue, he added picking up the bloody handkerchief and pressing it into Elaine's hand. They quickly ran out into the hall. Go quick, he urged again, and hide the handkerchief in the bag. Let no one see it. He shut the door. As they hurried away, Elaine breathed a sigh of relief. Why did he let us go, though? she whispered, her head in a whirl. I don't know panted Mary. But anyhow, thank heaven, we are out of it. Come, she added, taking Elaine's arm. Not a soul has seen us, except the servant. Let us get away as quietly as we can. They had reached the street, afraid to run. They hurried as fast as they could, until they turned the first corner. Elaine looked back. No one was pursuing. We must separate, added Mary. Let us go different ways. I will see you later. Perhaps they will think some enemy has murdered him. They pressed each other's hands and parted. Meanwhile, in the front room, Long Sin was on his feet again, brushing himself off and mopping up the blood. It worked very well, Sam, he said to the servant. They were conversing eagerly and laughing, and did not hear a noise in the back room. A sinister figure had made its way by means of a fire escape to a rear window that was not barred, and silently he had stolen in on them. Cat-like he advanced, but instead of striking at them, he quietly took a seat in a chair close behind them, a magazine revolver in his hand. They turned at a slight noise and saw him. Genuine fright was now on their faces as they looked at him, open-mouthed. "'What's all this?' he growled. "'I am known as the Clutching Hand. I allow no interferences with my affairs. Tell me what you are doing here with Elaine Dodge.' Their beady, almond eyes flashed fear. Clutching Hand moved menacingly. There was nothing for the astute long sin to do but to submit. Cowed by the well-known power of the master criminal, he took Clutching Hand into his confidence. With a low bow, Long Sin spread out his hands in surrender and submission. "'I will tell you, Honourable Sir,' he said at length. "'Go on,' growled the criminal." quickly long rehearsed what had happened, from the moment the idea of blackmail had entered his head. "'How about Mary Carson?' asked Clutching Hand, 
I saw her here. Long gave a glance of almost superstitious dread at the man, as if he had an evil eye. She will be back, is here now, he added, opening the door at a knock and admitting her. Adventurous Mary had hurried back to see that all was right. This time Mary was genuinely scared at the forbidding figure of which she had heard. Is it all right? pacified long. Henceforth we work with the Honourable Clutching Hand. Clutching Hand continued to emphasise his demands on them, punctuating his sentences by flourishes of the gun as he gave them the signs and passwords which would enable them to work with his own emissaries. It was a strange initiation. At home at last Elaine sunk down into a deep library chair and stared straight ahead. She saw visions of arrest and trial, of the terrible electric chair with herself in it, bound, and of giving of the fatal sign for turning on the current. Were such things as these going to happen to her, without Kennedy's help? Why had they quarrelled? She buried her face in her hands and wept. Then she would stand it no longer. She had not taken off her street clothes. She rose and almost fled from the house. Kennedy and I were still in the laboratory when a knock sounded at the door. I went to the door and opened it. There stood Elaine Dodge. It was a complete surprise to Craig. There was silence between them for a moment, and they merely looked at each other. Elaine was pale and woe-begone. At last Kennedy took a quick step toward her and led her to a chair. Still he felt a sort of constraint. "'What is the matter?' he asked at length. She hesitated, then suddenly burst out. "'Craig, I, I am a murderess.' I have never seen such a look on Craig's face. I know he wanted to laugh and say, You, a murderess? Yet he would not have offended even herself, accusation of the world. He managed to do the right thing and say nothing. Then she poured forth the story substantially, as I have set it down, but without the explanation which at that time was not known to any of us. Oh, expostulated Craig, there must be some mistake. It's impossible, impossible. No, she asserted. Look, here's my handkerchief, all spotted with blood. She opened the bag and displayed the blood-spotted handkerchief. He took it and examined it carefully. Elaine, he said earnestly, not at all displeased. I could see that something had come up that might blot out the past unfortunate misunderstanding. There simply must be something wrong here. Leave this handkerchief with me. I'll do my best. There was still a little restraint between them. She was almost ready to beg his pardon. For all the coolness there had been between them, yet still hesitated. Thank you, she said simply as she left the laboratory. Craig went to work abruptly without a word. On the laboratory table he placed his splendid microscope 
and several cases of slides, as well as innumerable microphotographs. He had been working for some time when he looked up. Ever hear of Dr. Edward Reichardt of the University of Pennsylvania and his wonderful discoveries of how blood crystals vary in different species? He asked. I had not, but did not admit it. Well, he went on, there is a blood test so delicate that one might almost say that he could identify a criminal by the fingerprints, so to speak, of his blood crystals. The hemoglobin or red colouring matter forms crystals, and the variations of these crystals, both in form and molecular construction, are such that they set apart every species of animal from every other, and even the races of men. Perhaps they may even set apart individuals. Here, Walter, we have sample of human blood crystals. I looked through the microscope as he directed. There I could see the crystals sharply defined. And here, he added, are the crystals of the blood on Elaine's handkerchief. I looked again as he changed the slides. There was a marked difference, and I looked up at him quickly. It is dog's blood, not human blood, he said simply. I looked again at the two sets of slides. There could be no doubt that there was a plain difference. Wonderful, I exclaimed. Yes, wonderful, he agreed. But what's the game back of all this? That's the main question now. Long after Clutching Hand had left, Long Sin was giving instructions to his servant and adventurous Mary just how he had had to change his plans as a result of the unexpected visit. Very well, nodded Mary as she left him. I will do as you say. Trust me. It was not much later then that Elaine received a second visit from Mary. Show her in, Jennings, she said to the butler nervously. Indeed, she felt that every eye must be upon her. Even Jennings would know of her guilt soon. Anxiously, therefore, Elaine looked at her visitor. Do you know why the servant allowed us to leave the apartment? whispered Mary, with a glance about fearfully as if the walls had ears. No, why? inquired Elaine anxiously. He's a tong man who has been chosen to do away with the prince. He followed me, and says you have done his work for him. If you will give him ten thousand dollars for expenses, he will attend to hiding the body. Here at least was a way out. But do you think that is all right? Can he do it? asked Elaine eagerly. Do it? Why, those tong men can do anything for money. Only one must be careful not to offend them. Mary was very convincing. Yes, I suppose you are right, agreed Elaine finally. I had better do as you say. It is the safest way out of the trouble. Yes, I'll do it. I'll stop at the bank now and get the money. They rose and Mary preceded her, eager to get away from the house. At the door, however, 
Elaine asked her to wait while she ran back on some pretext. In the library she took off the receiver of the telephone and quickly called a number. Our telephone rung in the middle of our conversation on blood crystals, and Kennedy himself answered it. It was Elaine asking Craig's advice. They have offered to hush the thing up for ten thousand dollars, she said, in a muffled voice. She seemed bent on doing it, and no amount of argument from him could stop her. She simply refused to accept the evidence of the blood crystals, as better than what her own eyes told her she had seen and done. Then wait for half an hour, he answered, without arguing further. You can do that without exciting suspicion. Go with her to her hotel and hand her over the money. All right, I'll do it, she agreed. What is the hotel? Craig wrote on a slip of paper what she told him. Room 509, Hotel Lacoste. Good, I'm glad you called me. Count on me, he finished as he hung up the receiver. Hastily he threw on his street coat. Go into the back room and get me that brace and bit, Walter, he asked. I did so. When I returned, I saw that he had placed the detectoscope and some other stuff in a bag. He shoved in the brace and bit also. Come on, hurry, he urged. We must have made a record time in getting to the costi. It was an ornate place, where merely to breathe was expensive. We entered, and by some excuse, Kennedy contrived to get past the vigilant bellhops. We passed the telephone switchboard, and entered the elevator, getting off at the fifth floor. With a hasty glance up and down the corridor, to make sure no one was about, Kennedy came to room 509, then passed to the next, 511, opening the door with a skeleton key. We entered and Craig locked the door behind us. It was an ordinary hotel room, but well furnished. Fortunately, it was unoccupied. Quietly Craig went to the door, which led to the next room. It was, of course, locked also. He listened a moment carefully, not a sound. Quickly, with an exclamation of satisfaction, he opened that door also and went into 509. This room was much like that in which we had already been. He opened the hall door. Watch here, Walter, he directed. Let me know at the slightest alarm. Craig had already taken the brace and bit from the bag and started to bore through the wall into room 511, selecting a spot behind a picture of a Spanish dancer, a spot directly back of her snapping black eyes. He finished quickly and inserted the detectoscope so that the lens fitted as an eye in the picture. The eyepiece was in room 511. Then he started to brush up the pieces of plaster on the floor. Craig, I whispered hastily, as I heard an elevator door. Someone's coming. He hurried to the door and looked. There they are, he said, as we saw Elaine and Mary 
rounding the corner of the hall. Across the hall, although we did not know it at the time, in room 540, already Long Sin had taken up his station, just to be handy. There he had been with his servant, playing with his two trained white rats. Long placed them up his capacious sleeves, and carefully opened the door to look out. Unfortunately, he was just in time to see the door of 509 open and disclose us. His subtle glance detected our presence without our knowing it, hastily picking up the brace and bit and the rest of the debris, and with a last look at the detectoscope, which was hardly noticeable, even if one already knew it was there, we hurried into 511 and shut the door. Kennedy mounted a chair and applied his eye to the detectoscope. Just then Mary and Elaine entered the next room, Mary opening the door with a regular key. "'Won't you step in?' she asked. Elaine did so, and Mary hesitated in the hall. Long Sin had slipped out on noiseless feet and taken refuge behind some curtains. As he saw her alone, he beckoned to Mary. "'There's a stranger in the next room,' he whispered. "'I don't like him. Take the money and as quickly as possible get out and go to my apartment.' At the news that there was a suspicious stranger about, Mary showed great alarm. Everything was so rapid now that the slightest hesitation meant disaster. Perhaps, by quickness, even a suspicious stranger could be fooled, she reasoned. At any rate, Long Sin was resourceful. She had better trust him. Mary followed Elaine into the room, where she had seated herself already, and locked the door. "'Have you the money there?' she asked. "'Yes,' nodded Elaine, taking out the package of bills which she had got from the bank during the half-hour delay. All this we could see by gazing alternately through the detectoscope. Elaine handed Mary the money. Mary counted it slowly. At last she looked up. "'It's all right,' she said. "'Now, I'll take this to that tong leader. He's in a room only just across the hall. She went out. Kennedy, at the detectoscope, was very excited as this went on. He now jumped off the chair on which he had been standing and rushed to the door to head her off. To our surprise, in spite of the fact that we could turn the key in the lock, it was impossible to open it. It was only a moment that Craig paused at the door. The next moment he burst into 509, followed closely by me. With a scream, Elaine was on her feet in an instant. There was no time for explanations, however. He rushed to the door to go out, but it was locked, somehow, on the outside. The skeleton key would not work at any rate. He shot the lock and dashed out, calling back, Walter, stay there with Elaine. Mary had just succeeded in getting on the elevator as Kennedy hurried down the hall. The door was closed and the car descended. 
He rung the push-bell furiously, but there was no answer. Had he got so far in the chase only to be outwitted? He dashed back to the room with us and jerked down the telephone receiver. Hello, 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 he called. No answer. There seemed to be no way to get a connection. What was the matter? He hurried down the hall again. No sooner had Elaine and Mary actually gone into the room than Long and his servant stole out of 540 across the hall. Somewhere they had obtained a strong but thin rope. Quickly and silently Long tied the handle of the door 511 in which we were to the handle of 540, which he was vacating. As both doors opened inward and were opposite, they were virtually locked. Then Long and his servant hurried down the hallway to the elevator. Down in the hotel lobby, with his followers, the Chinaman paused before the telephone switchboard, where two girls were at work. "'You may go,' ordered Long. As his man left, he moved over closer to the switchboard. He was listening eagerly and also watching an indicator that told the numbers of the rooms which called as they flashed into view. Just as a call from 509 flashed up, Long slipped the rings off his little fingers and loosened the white rats on the telephone switchboard itself. With a shriek, the telephone system of the Costi went temporarily out of business. The operators fled to the nearest chairs, drawing their skirts about them. There was the greatest excitement among all the women in the corridor. Such a display of hosiery was never contemplated by even the most daring costumers. Shouts from the bellboys who sought to catch the rats who scampered hither and thither in frightened abandon, mingled with the shrieks of the ladies. Kennedy had succeeded in finding the alcove of the floor clerk in charge of the fifth floor. There on his desk was an instrument, having a stylus on the end of two arms, connected to a system of magnets. It was a telautograph. Unceremoniously, Craig pushed the clerk out of his seat and sat down himself. It was a last chance, now that the telephone was out of commission. Downstairs in the hotel office, where the excitement had not spread to everyone, was the other end of the electric long-distance writer. It started to write, as Kennedy wrote upstairs. House Detective Quick, hold woman with blue chantelaine bag, getting out of elevator. The clerks downstairs saw it and shouted above the din of the rat baiting. McCain, McCain! The clerk had torn off the message from the telautograph register and handed it to the houseman who pushed his way to the desk. Quickly the detective called to the bellhops. Together they hurried after the well-dressed woman who had just swept out of the elevator. Mary had already passed through the excited lobby and out and was about to cross the street safe. McCain and the bellhops 
were now in full cry after her. Flight was useless. She took refuge in indignation and threats. But McCain was obdurate. She passed quickly to tears and pleadings. It had no effect. They insisted on leading her back. The game was up. Even an offer of money failed to move their adamantine hearts. Nothing would do but that she must face her accusers. In the meantime, Long Sin had recovered his precious and useful pets. Life in the Costier had assumed something of its normal aspect, and Craig had succeeded in getting an elevator. It was just as Mary was led in threatening and pleading by turns that he stepped off in the lobby. There was, however, still just enough excitement to cover a little pantomime. Long Sin had been about to slip out of a side door, thinking all was well, when he caught sight of Mary being led back. She had also seen him and began to struggle again. Quickly he shook his head, indicating for her to stop. Then slowly he secretly made the sign of the clutching hand at her. It meant that she must not snitch. She obeyed instantly, and he quietly disappeared. Here, cried Kennedy, take her up in the elevator. I'll prove the case. With the house detective and Kennedy, Mary was hustled into the elevator and whisked back as she had escaped. In the meantime, I had gathered up what stuff we had in the room we had entered and had returned with Kennedy's bag. What, what's it all about? inquired Elaine excitedly. I tried to explain. Just then, out in the hall, we could hear loud voices, and that of Mary above the rest. Kennedy, a man who looked like a detective, and some bellboys were leading her toward us. Now, not a word of who she is in the papers, McCain, Kennedy was saying evidently about Elaine. You know it wouldn't sound well for La Costa. As for that woman, well, I've got the money back. You can take her off, make the charge. As the houseman left with Mary, I handed Craig his bag. We moved toward the door, and as we stood there a moment with Elaine, he quietly handed over to her the big roll of bills. She took it with surprise still written in her big blue eyes. Oh, thank you. I might have known it was only a blackmail scheme, she cried eagerly. Craig held out his hand, and she took it quickly, gazing into his eyes. Craig bowed politely, not knowing what to do under the circumstances. If he had been less of a scientist, he might have understood the look on her face but with a nod to me, he turned and went. As she looked first at him, then at the paltry ten thousand in her hand, Elaine stamped her little foot in vexation. I'm glad I didn't say anything more, she cried. No, no, he shall beg my pardon first, there. End of chapter 12